0: I will work day in and day out wake up and smell the coffee. We
1: want to return to the European Union. Another future is possible, but we've got to fight for it. Order! Hello and welcome uh, to the podcast. Before we get started, I just want to um, offer a heads up, uh, a content warning that there will be um, discussion of um, sexual assault Um, in this episode of the podcast. So if you'd prefer not to listen, then that's um, totally understandable. But it's just to to give a a content warning start. This episode is going to um, discuss the benefit system and the way that both parties in government and in opposition have approached it, their kind of policies, and um, the way that it is viewed by the general public. And for this discussion, I am delighted to be joined by Lauren Davison, member of the Young Fabians' executive, um, part of Labour for Trans Rights, the uh, membership secretary for Stoke South CLP, and Ollie Probert-Hill, member of the LGBT Co-opters Committee and LGBTQ plus rep for Young Labour Under-19s. Welcome to the podcast, both of you. So the first question uh, that I'd like to ask is basically a fairly direct one. Why do you think that the benefit system and those in receipted benefits are often so stigmatized both by the media and by politicians? okay so
0: I think I think it is down to the media quite as a whole I think newspapers I think as a whole people like the, groups like the Telegraph and the Daily Mail have kind of made it so that the uh, that, that these groups are kind of ordered. And I think it's quite, I don't know the word to put it, but honestly it's, it's evil. It's, it's, not, it's an awful thing to do. I don't know why they do it, but they just do. It makes sense.
2: So I think there are a few reasons for this. Uh, I think the phenomenon of stigmatising claimants actually stems all the way back to Thatcher. And it's been carried on by literally every government since. I think basically Britain is an incredibly classist society and people always want someone to look down on. And as Ollie said, the media play a huge role in this. And this came really to a head under the Labour government of the early two thousands. We had a press which would look for the most unrepresentative stories possible. So let's say benefit fraud or, you know, single mums claiming loads of money. And they made a moral panic out of it. And they've successfully used benefits to stoke division and turn communities against each other. And this isn't just the middle and upper classes against benefit claimants, this is people on minimum wage being told and believing that it's their neighbour who claims benefits, that is the reason that their wages are so low, or that the economy's in crisis, or that they can't get a council house, rather than the real reason, which is a political class which is too scared to tax the wealthy and reinvest in our communities. And I think politicians obviously have a role in this especially with types of TV shows that people have called poverty porn, like Benefit Street. And I personally believe the coalition government used it to manufacture consent for their austerity agenda that meant that they went on to basically decimate the welfare state and cut benefits for millions of people.
1: Uh, Do do you think then that this can be seen as as an example of how um, politics and the media often either deliberately or, or maybe not necessarily deliberately, um, coincidentally coalesce around a particular subject matter and kind of latch onto it because they see it as beneficial for other things that they want to do.
2: Yeah, they want to push an agenda, and I think it's in the interests of media because it fuels division, it fuels resentment, it fuels anger, and then... You get right-wing politicians, often right-wing, not always right-wing. Sometimes the Labour Party are guilty of it. We've seen this. We've seen Jackie Smith in 2013 say that when Labour was opposed to the squeeze and benefits, we were becoming the party of scroungers. That type of rhetoric has been across our political system. And, you know, Conservative government and the Coalition government, yeah, granted they were worse. They've gone completely mask off in their hatred of benefit claimants. They've obviously brought in the work capability assessments that have ruined the lives of thousands of disabled people. Um, but it's all part of this neoliberal ideology that the media largely have and a lot of our politicians have that's led to austerity. They've balanced the books on the back of our most vulnerable people, basically. Mm-hmm. And it's social murder. That's plain and simple. It's social murder.
1: Um, the, the two child benefit cap is clearly gonna hurt millions of families. Why do you think, given the negative financial impact it will cause, that yougov's recent polling on the subject suggests a majority of the public are in favour? Ollie, what do you think? yeah
0: no. so I think I, mean, I know talks about it a lot, but I think it is the media's fault. I think certain sections of the media, as I said, Daily Mail, Telegraph, was filling you know, these these awful rags that are in the newspaper have made it so that the public kind of feel scared when or anything comes through that will help people or anything like that. I think the word benefit has become stigmatized as a whole. Mm. I just think there's a lot of people in our society who I think mean well, but maybe will blame people on benefits. Mm. Like I know but like I know people even I know who are I'd say at the heart of it that they're, they're all right people but they will blame people who may who can't work for multiple reasons. Personally I think it's really it shows one of the worst sides of our of our society mm. that that is a common or that is an all right way of thinking. I just, you know, it's the mm. I think it's it's just it's a shame that our society is like that to yeah
1: do you think sometimes that it's done without people thinking about it that it's done almost like as a
0: a kind of um unconscious reaction yeah completely I think as a as Lawrence said it's just it's just neoliberal agenda that kind of pushed this since it's it, it the turn of neoliberalism, I think, until there's drastic change, this will be in in the public's viewpoint for generations to come, which is really the threat thing, isn't it?
1: Yeah. Lauren, what do you think in regards to YouGov showing that there is a majority of support in, in one of their recent polls for keeping the cap? What what do you think that's about?
2: So I think it is, as myself and Ollie have said that, you know, the public's had 20 years of hearing how supposedly generous the benefit system is, and they've been fed moral panics about people claiming benefits whilst they're on holiday, and this resentment has grown. Obviously, talking about the negative financial impact, um, it would cost 1.4 billion a year to lift 250,000 kids out of poverty. An analysis by the Child Poverty Action Group has shown that child poverty costs us 39 billion pound a year. So obviously you've got the long-term effects of child poverty, things like higher crime rates, more costs for the NHS, worse educational outcomes. All of this has to be paid for in the long run and it affects our economy. But obviously Keir Starmer and Rachel Rees are looking at it through a short-term lens and they're not looking into the future or what the future costs are going to be of keeping this cap. But the thing is, there are two, I would say, two main narratives that really are used to respond to the idea of people getting money um, when they're when they have kids first of all people still believe that people just pop kids out for benefit money and that's a narrative i've heard again and again and again and again not just from middle class people people on a council estate the council estate i live on when i have chats with people everyone claims that they know someone who's had another kid for the benefits they'll get and it's just not the case and there's this whole other idea and we saw it when the free school meals conversation came up it's if you can't afford kids don't have them Mm. and it's a really simplistic silly statement from people that often haven't had to claim benefits because they've not needed them and they don't realize you can lose your job or become ill and suddenly you can't feed your kids and it's it's classism and the fact that a substantial amount of labor support was back to two child cap goes to show that even among supposedly progressive people there are people with absolutely no understanding of how, how difficult life can be because let's be clear it can be referred to as the two child cap actually let's talk about what that means it's a rape clause the fact that a woman will have to go to the dwp i recount the fact she was raped before she gets any help so she might not have even told the police she might not have told family but she's expected to tell a government department that probably isn't trained knowing what we know about the dwp It's just morally wrong and economically wrong.
1: Just thinking about um, Labour supporters um, for a moment and and, and the Labour Party, do you think that the direction of travel that the Labour Party is going in at the moment, that seeing a poll like this is going to kind of drive that direction down a certain path that if, you know, the, there wasn't polling like this seen by the party there might be more of a, in terms of the leadership more of a, 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 a thinking that this isn't necessarily a, a good policy to pursue. Do you, do you think that the the thinking behind why um, Star has said that he would keep the cap is because he's just seen the of poll and doesn't want to upset the apple cart as it were in terms of the next election?
2: Uh, yeah, I think probably. I mean, it coincided around the same time I think, polling that he said it, but something that was mentioned to me the other day, and I actually find very interesting, in the interview where he announced it, why was that policy handpicked and asked to him out of all policies? It's very random. It's a very random thing to be asked about out of the middle of nowhere. And he had a very prepared response specifically about the two child cap. But then he was asked about other spending commitments and other benefits. Things, I think housing benefit, I could be wrong. And he sort of just batted that away, but he was very specific and very happy to say, no, we are definitely going to, you know, keep the two child cap, which makes me think he specifically or his team maybe asked the interviewer or briefed them that this was a plan. So there's a lot more coordination. It wasn't just a spontaneous thing of being asked. There's a little bit of calculation going on there, I think, Mm. that probably coincides with the polling.
1: The benefit system, as, as as we've already discussed, has been underfunded and the subject of, of numerous government cuts over the past few years. Given the scale of problems that people are facing and how much many people rely on the system for support, how long um, do we think that the argument of attempting to justify cuts so that the budget can be balanced can be sustained?
0: Uh, Oli, what do you think? I think this argument is dying out. People like me, people of my generation... Are, have lived through Tory austerity have lived through well, obviously the people have lived through Tory austerity but lived through the Cameronite Johnsonite wave of Tory, Tory austerity and have learned that the Tories are well, a bit afraid to talk about their asses and it's and we know it's it lies, we know this whole thing of oh, we, we, we you know, have to cut benefits which is uh, for, for a balanced budget and stuff like that it's not true. It's not accurate, and we know that. And so I think, even though, as I said before, saying "look, looking at optimistic," mm. I feel a lot of people in my generation know this. This sort of rhetoric is wrong. Mm. And it's why. It's like I went to an RMT at a trade union rally a couple about a year ago now, and you could hear the chants from people. Uh, and it, it was anti-Labour, it was anti-Tory, as people say that they're fed up. And I think it just shows that we need to be, we need to be the part in it, that is against austerity. So,
1: So, um, I mean, Lauren, what, what do you think of this? How long do you think that this kind of argument can be justified and, and, and made?
2: Well, I don't think it's ever been justifiable. I think the fact that the economic orthodoxy that allowed austerity to be painted as the only option is you know inherently flawed and it's mm. it, the the alternative economic um argument was never presented at the time that austerity started anyway so we were not given airspace to talk about um you know stimulus and investing in communities the only way forward was seen as cuts um I think there has been a softening of attitudes towards benefit claimants. And as Ollie was saying, younger people particularly are not willing to put up with it anymore. They're not willing to put up with more cuts because we've had our youth clubs shut, our schools. Everything has been just taken from us. Um, I think certainly the course of the pandemic, more people having to sign on to universal credit has really provided a bit of a shock to people that, you know, actually you don't get that much being on benefit. What does worry me with the Labour Party and for all the faults of the Corbyn project, and there were many, he was able to shift the narrative against austerity and benefit cuts, and he changed Labour's kind of internal stance on it. We can't allow ourselves to go back to the days where we're threatening to cut benefits to be tougher than the Tories, like Rachel Reeves did. And, you know, for front benches to be briefing the press, there's no money left we are really painting ourselves into a corner in government because any time we do spend money now, we will be reminded But oh, I thought you couldn't afford to feed children. And, you know, as long as the two main parties are briefing that there's no money left and that we need to make cuts and we need to do this and we need to do that, that idea, I think, is going to just be sustained.
1: Mm-hmm. Um, we've touched upon it a little bit um, in terms of the the way that the, the Labour Party... Uh, announced this, that they would continue the the two-child benefit camp. But I'd like to look a bit more into the particulars of of, of the Labour Party and its relationship to the the benefit system and and, and to benefit claimants. We've touched upon it a little bit, but, Olly, I mean, what do you think of the kind of internal dynamic within the Labour Party? What do you think is the motivation behind... Um, not just this policy, but also generally the current Labour Party's attitude towards uh, the benefit system and, and, and spending
0: money on it. I think they, I think certain people within the party believe, oh, this is the only way to get power. It's the only way to get power is to be Tory-like or anything like that. But that's just not the case. People have seen, or oh, the Tories screwed up. Massively, and people living standards are going down. Uh, people like general quality of life is going down. Things aren't all right under austerity. I know that but it may be obvious for some of us on the left, but feel the, the general public have kind of realised that. Like, I I've taken to people like uh, who I know, who have maybe been Tory voters all their lives, or starting to think, okay, no. The, the the Conservative Party isn't the one for me. I'm gonna uh, I'm gonna change. And so we don't need to be being Tory light. We don't need to be being Republican of a We can bring through truly transformative policies and things will be okay. We will be elected and you know, I, and I think worse comes to worse. and and I, I might sound really optimistic here. I think we may get hung parliament. We may get a, a Labour Party that is a Labour Party that isn't like that that, that that can govern a Labour Party that with 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 Keir Starmer as Prime Minister with uh, with all the people who with, with all will people who are in governing positions right now uh, in leadership positions and they don't need to be doing these Tory like things as I said before. They could bring through really transformative policies and still get elected people are that fed up with the conservatives mm-hmm. i mean
1: well, lauren what, what are your thoughts in terms of the internal labor party dynamics around the benefit system and the way that the labor party is making policy at the moment around it
2: so i just want to agree with what he said and i think We're in a very dangerous, precarious situation if we carry on as we are literally shooting down anything that is likely to give anyone a tangible uh, improvement in their living standards. We're going to give so much ground to people who literally sit there and say all politicians are the same and they're all going to screw the poor over so it doesn't matter who gets in. I don't need to vote. That's the perfect recipe for having people not leave their houses on polling day. And, you know, thus far... We've kind of been able to bat away accusations that Labour are red Tories by making people um, realise, you know, the worst Labour government is still better than a Tory one. But if we're literally keeping Tory policy in place and refuse it to take policy positions in case the Tories put them on their leaflets and criticise us, like we might as well just pack up and go home because what's the point, you know, power for the sake of power. Or power because it will genuinely make people's lives better. What, what is our aim here? And obviously just talking a little bit about the internal culture, um, sorry to go off piste, but if I may, I just want to direct this next comment to everyone in the Labour Party who is supporting the leadership on this without question and saying that we shouldn't be scrutinizing Labour till we're in power. Give your heads a wobble. There have been numerous people. On the right of the party, who have told me and others in private that they don't support the two-child cap, but rather than use their influence to, you know, force a U-turn, they've said nothing, or they've publicly lied and said they support Starbuck. I won't name names. They know who they are. But like, are you not embarrassed? How are you okay with starving children just so you've got a shot at a safe seat in Parliament in eight years' time? How do you actually sleep at night? Like, it it just amazes me, and. You know, we're being told, just trust the process, save the criticism until Labour are in power. But that's so easy to say if you're not someone who might be in the firing line of a Labour party that keeps the worst of Tory welfare policy in place. You know, it's easy to demand trust, but it's a lot harder to win that, and rightly so. When the current Shadow Chancellor has on two occasions in 2013 and 2015 said that um, Labour would be tough on benefits than Tories, and that Labour is not the party for benefit claimants, how are we meant to trust that?
1: Do you think in terms of the like internal reaction from members, do you think that there is a, a kind of clear division on this issue, those who are willing to speak out about it publicly versus those who, who aren't?
2: Absolutely, and I think there are people that don't want to upset the apple cart because they know where their bread's buttered, they know that by speaking out against the leadership it puts them in a position where they are not going to be trusted or they're not going to be um you know thought of as highly by the sorts of people that they need to be keeping on slide to advancing the party and that's what it comes down to i think people need to be honest and you know say it with their chest if they if they don't support the two child cap if they don't support this turn to the right they need to be honest and say so if they don't unfortunately gives me no pleasure to say this they will be complicit in two hundred and fifty thousand kids a year languishing in poverty, it's that simple, and they need to have a reckoning with their consciences. If they can, if they think they can sleep at night with that, then that's on them. But I'm not prepared to go down the same route. Um, I, I I just think people are not showcasing the best of themselves. We're not covering ourselves in glory as a party by doing this, and you know I'm actually very disappointed at members of the PLP as well, especially people who've got reputations for being honest brokers and saying it as it is if rumors are to be believed they all said nothing in the plp meeting nothing not a word and i have to wonder if that's because of a upcoming reshuffle that's been rumored but we'll leave that there
1: i'd like to turn um to housing um currently local housing allowance payments are frozen as are discretionary housing payments Uh, this is having a, a massive impact on renters and is making housing even more unaffordable um, than it otherwise would be. How important do you think the unfreezing of these payments would be for those who need them? Um, Lauren, what what are your thoughts on um, this? In in terms of the um, local housing allowance and discretionary housing payments, how important do you think it would be for um, renters if the um, payments were unfrozen? um not capped at the the current um caps that they are
2: so for those that don't know what the local housing allowance payments are for the benefits of listeners basically housing benefits so those on low incomes can get help with their rent um but the proportion of support they can receive is then capped by the lha amount this is a figure sort of determined by the size and composition of a household but also by local rents Largely, they're designed for people living in some of the cheaper properties in an area, which often the LHA payments often cover rent for completely. But the issue is when someone lives somewhere that the rent exceeds LHA rates, they have to fund the shortfall themselves. Um, and the government has frozen LHA payments, so they're not rising in line with rent increases. So this is a example just to illustrate the issue. Every local area sets different rates. I live in Stoke-on-Trent, Um... In my area, I'd be entitled to £86 a week. Let's say in 2020, that covered my rent fine. But the cost of living crisis, the landlord decided to up my rent to £120 a week. I would have to find that shortfall myself. And for some people, all that's just not possible. So we know that the LHA payment being frozen has had a huge impact on low-income renters. The Institute of Fiscal Studies has shown that freezing them means 1.1 million families are going to be losing 50 quid a month in housing support to save the government 650 million pound this financial year. Um, because there's a disparity in how far rental prices on average change across the country, families on low incomes in areas where the rental prices have shot up quickly are now having to deal with a larger gap between housing costs and the support that they can get. And the same is the case with the discretionary housing payments. It's been a case of the government as per usual massively cutting the centralized budgets that they're allocating to councils and then councils are having to find the money out of their own reserves or budgets or they're just refusing applications altogether and because since the last year the government has cut the budgets by 29 percent, and these payments are probably one of the best tools in a suite of wider policies to prevent homelessness so obviously you're dealing with depletion of council housing stock you've got less funding and then you've got pandemic and a cost of living crisis uh you know it's gonna have massive impacts on income but also it's gonna cause things like homelessness so it's it's a perfect storm of horrific things that's really just making life difficult for lots of people
0: mm-hmm. absolutely well, that was amazing Lauren but and I, 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 I don't know as much as Lauren and This sort of thing, but I do know that renters are having it tough time, and this uh, and this sort of thing with the uh, uh, with local housing allowance payments being you know, everything will drastically hurt people. Hurt will hurt young people, to be honest. Will hurt people who've just come out who are maybe just renting for the first time, maybe living alone. This will hurt them, and to be honest, this could hurt a lot of people. This could damage the way a lot To be honest, Absolutely, absolutely. There is often an association
1: um, with the benefit system and migration stroke immigration uh, that those who either flee to the UK as refugees or those who emigrate from their home countries uh, to come and live and work in the UK are somehow living off the benefit system. Why um, do we think this image has become so fixed in the minds of some members of the public and how do you think we dispel this myth. Um, Lauren, what, what what do you think?
2: So, uh, I think the same people we were talking about earlier, the same kinds of people that make benefit claimants as a whole out to be de- undeserving, they usually don't just stop with benefit claimants. Um, within sort of benefit claimants as a group, there's always been this distinction made between the deserving ones and the undeserving ones. and. You know, those who are disabled often get classified as deserving because it's not their fault they're disabled, whereas those who are not working get made up to be undeserving because it's seen as a choice. Um, There's an inherent racism that manifests in this way, and that's the idea that we should look after our own first. But, you know, ironically, the kinds of people that say that vote to worry and then do nothing to help their own anyway, so, you know, it's a chatting breeze, really, but... They just don't want to see the government help anyone who isn't white British. Now, I think one of the biggest barriers that we've got, especially for asylum seekers and refugees, is the fact that they're not allowed to work if they want to. Mm. Obviously many are fleeing absolutely horrendous circumstances and work is just not going to be the best thing for them. It should be a choice, but some do want to work and they're not allowed to. And you know, these are people that have probably worked in their country of origin and they'd like to do so here. They've got skills, but the rules are ridiculous. And people say, oh, well, they're claiming benefits they're not doing anything. They're not allowed to. They're physically not allowed to while while their asylum claim is being reviewed. And we know how long that's taken. But on a more broader point, we need to educate people about immigration and immigrants more widely because the fact is, on average, immigrants tend to be younger, they are healthier on average, and they're less likely to use public services. So it has an overall benefit to us economically it's when you hear narratives like oh well immigrants are skipping to the front of the queue for housing it's it's just not true Mm. and you know the far right use that narrative a lot to whip up resentment and they're good at it and we need to get better at calling that out and that's up to progressive people because labor is very good at panicking when immigration is mentioned and they do the whole hand wringing and start Muttering platitudes about how there are well, you know, legitimate concerns, and it's a very difficult conversation to have. But unless we present an alternative narrative to the the reactionary, racist shite that frankly MPs like Jonathan Gullis and Sweller Braverman spout, we will forever have nothing to say, and we'll be losing the argument.
1: Absolutely, um, Ollie, what are your thoughts on this? How do you? Think that this myth has become um, embedded in the minds of some people, and ha- how do you think we dispel it? This image
0: is based in racism, and so that these people who are fleeing war zones, coming to this country, they're just trying to find a better life for themselves, mm-hmm. they're they're seeking benefits somehow. Uh, as Lauren said, these people are less likely to to use public services and stuff like that. So, obviously, that is a complete lie. And it is based on, on racism. There's people like Richard Toth who harass these people. I remember, I think a couple of months ago, uh, there, was a, there was a video of him uh, videoing the you know, asylum seeker in a hotel and trying to make him out like he was a bad guy. And stuff like that. It's all right. There's disgusting to be honest. These people have come to this country seeking a better life, and people like Richard Tice are harassing them. And it's it's just not right, is it? It's uh, it's downright evil. Um, we're coming towards
1: uh, the end of the podcast, but there is uh one final question I'd like uh to ask. I I, I put out a, a tweet on Twitter asking if um, anyone would like uh, to ask either or, or both of you um any questions, and um, William. Uh, responded. He sent a, a tweet in, and he asked to to both of you, would you rather repeal, the two child benefit cap, or bring back closed Sure Start centres? Starmer is unlikely to bring back both, with the possibility of him as prime minister. But which policy would you prioritise, and why? Lauren, y- your reaction to that question. One,
2: um, my instinct. Is to say, and this is purely from a utilitarian basis. I'm not even sure that's the right word, but we'll go with it. Um, the cumulative help that Sure Start centres would provide could, in theory, ameliorate some of the worst impacts of the two-child cap. And obviously, you've got the issue of, you know, the whole rate clause issue, and that would also need reform in an ideal well. world. But Sure star provides a whole package of help and support for parents and like done properly it could offset some of the worst stuff and I think it would help more people than just the 250,000 a year so I'd need to obviously look at the figures for that but that's my instinct
0: mm-hmm.
1: Ollie, what's your reaction to, to that question
0: but I've been thinking about this I honestly don't know because I feel you know setting up these short soft sensors again, uh, and repealing uh, the two-child limit, it would be both really beneficial. So, to be honest, I don't really know. I think both have their, their benefits. Both have their... Uh, both could help a lot of people. So as Lauren said, I don't really know what I would do, to be honest. but well, to be honest, I think we should do both. But, you know, that's society mm-hmm. yeah absolutely well thank you um both for coming on
1: the podcast and, and, and discussing this um, with me it's been a really fascinating discussion if people want to find out more about um both of you where should they go to find out more lauren where should people go to find out more about you
2: uh my twitter is lauren d2212 you can find out stuff i'm doing with open labour and uh, young fabian and yeah, just probably Twitter more generally, but yeah, that's me.
1: Fantastic, um, Ollie,
0: uh, where should people go to uh, find out more about you? Uh, to be honest, my Twitter. Uh, Overall, it's uh, it's it's at Labour Ollie. Oh, cool. uh, I post everything on there. You know, for uh, do with the LGBT conferences, uh, my my local CLP, uh, young Labour under under nineteen you know, stuff like that everything's really on message.
1: Well, um, hopefully people who've been listening to the podcast will certainly go and follow both of you now, if they're not already. I imagine a lot of people already are. Um, thank you once again to both of you for coming on the podcast. Thank you for listening to this episode of the podcast. If you've enjoyed it, you can subscribe to us on iTunes, Spotify, Podbeam and Amazon Music. You can also follow us on Twitter, at Debated Podcast. like us on Facebook, debated podcast and if you'd like to get in touch with us whether about appearing on an episode of the podcast or commenting on an episode that you've listened to you can do so at the at gmail.com thank you for listening i hope you listen to the next one